Good morning. It is so good to praise God together. I know that it makes God's heart glad to hear us sing and to just see his children together. He loves that. What a good day to be in God's house and to look into God's word together. Would you take your Bible or grab a pew Bible in front of you and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15. We have been walking through the life of David from a teenager until now. Today we're seeing him as he's nearing old age. He's lived an a interesting, complicated life as someone who was a person after God's own heart and a person who made a lot of mistakes and experienced a lot of grace and someone who fought a lot of giants that surprisingly are very similar to the giants that we face in our lives. So today as we dive into the story again in 2 Samuel 15, we see David with his head in his hands. David who is retreating from his beloved capital city, Jerusalem. David who is weeping and defeated. What happened? What happened to David? The rug has been pulled out from under him here. A person that he loved so much, his son Absalom, has betrayed him. And life has taken an ugly, unexpected turn for David here. Things are not turning out as he planned. His son Absalom, from whom he was estranged due to this tangle in their family of betrayal and murder and revenge. And after many years, they've sort of reconciled. And now King David is growing old and Absalom's true colors as an ambitious person are coming out. Walter Brueggemann, the Bible scholar, calls this a terrible drama of ruthless power and ambivalent love. Sounds like a soap opera commercial, doesn't it? (laughs) Soap operas have nothing on 2 Samuel. There is a lot going on here. 2 Samuel 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Listen to God's word for us today. After this, Absalom bought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from, and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've got a really strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment, and so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. After four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill a vow I made to him. For while your servant was at Geshur in Aram, I promised to sacrifice to the Lord in Hebron if he would bring me back to Jerusalem. All right, the king told him, go and fulfill your vow. 
So Absalom went to Hebron. But while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you are to say, Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He took 200 men from Jerusalem with him as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo. Soon, many others also joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum. God, thank you for your word today. We invite you to come once again to open our hearts and minds so that you can be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in this series, Giants in the Land, and we've been looking at how the giants that David faced with an amazing faith in our amazing God can help us to face giants in our lives with the amazing power of God. And today, we see David saying, I'm done. This is it. This is a situation that is bringing him to his knees. It's something stronger than just discouragement or disappointment. It's betrayal. It's disillusionment. Someone that he counted on to be on his side has wounded him deeply. It's friendly fire. Maybe you have experienced something like this, something that just has broken your heart. A trusted friend tells your secret, or a coworker throws you under the bus to save their own skin. A spouse is unfaithful, or a child rejects their parent. This last one is what David is facing. That's the giant that he is looking at today. It's not just a problem to solve, but it has taken the heart out of him. If you have faced this kind of disappointment, this kind of heartbreak before, hear this good news. You are not alone. And this is not a giant that is too big for our amazing God. There are many others who have faced this kind of giant. David, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, where he writes that everyone who was working side by side with him in the hard work of bringing the good news to new places, everyone has left him. Everyone's deserted him. In 2 Timothy 4, 9, we read, he's writing to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and Luke alone is with me. Jesus probably could have said the same thing. Those closest to him, Judas, betrayed him, and Peter turned his back on him. And here, today we have David. His own son, Absalom, double-crosses him. Now, Absalom was a really popular guy. If you flip back a page in your Bible and turn to 14, chapter 14, verse 25, you see this little description of Absalom. It says that Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all of Israel. And it says he was flawless from head to foot. 
And listen to what verse 26 says. He cut his hair only once a year, and only then because it was so heavy. When he weighed it, it came out to five pounds. Now, that's not a compliment you hear about handsome guys very often. He was really hairy. (laughs) But apparently that was a really big compliment for Absalom. He was perfect from head to foot. And he had this glorious head of hair. And we see here that Absalom has developed his own entourage. He's hired a whole bunch of guys to be his bodyguards. And they don't just stand behind him with, you know, a little earphone in their ear and watch over him. He gets them to run out ahead of him wherever he goes. And he has chariots and horses. He has developed his own royal parade to go wherever he's going. He's on the campaign trail even though there is no job opening for a new king. He's out there kissing the babies and shaking hands and winning people over. One of the responsibilities of a king back then was to be sort of the supreme court for the people, to give people a place to come and bring their troubles when they had a legal problem or a social problem and make the final decision for them, so to be a a court of law for people. You may remember that story of Solomon, David's son, when he was king, that two women came to him with the same baby saying, this child belongs to me, and Solomon had to decide which one was the real mother of that baby. The king is supposed to sit in the public court, which was the, the city gate that was kind of the town square, supposed to come there and sit there and dispense justice. But we see Absalom putting himself in this position. And it seems like King David may be vulnerable here. These verses 4 through 6 imply that he's slacking off on his job and that perhaps people are not able to get justice from him, get access to him to get a decision in their cases. And so early every morning, Absalom is out there with his entourage, no doubt and his glorious hair, and he's ready to receive anybody who comes needing a decision from the king. And he tries to make everybody feel like they are important to him. He asks them where they're from, and he asks them what tribe they're from. And I can imagine him making a mental note of which tribes he's got a loyal person in and making this list. But he's trying to make them feel like they matter to him. And when people try to bow down to him, he says, oh, no, no, no. Here, you're just, I'm just like you. And he shakes their hand and he embraces them. The Scottish preacher William Blakey in 1800 said this, and you can imagine him saying it in a great Scottish accent. With all his fine face and figure and manner, his chariot and horses, his outrunners and other attendants, Absalom, after all, was but a black-hearted thief. Hmm. Verse 6 says, And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Stole their hearts right out under his father, King David. 
And he bides his time. He does this for several years and slowly gains support behind the scenes. And when he feels he has enough support, he organizes a ruthless coup. It's quite a conspiracy. He gets a large group of friends, many of whom he has tricked into being there. And he gets Ahithophel, one of David's top advisors. Verse 12 says, Soon many others joined Absalom and the conspiracy gained momentum. And if we'd read a little bit farther, we would see that his conspiracy came to pass exactly how he had planned it. At the right moment, the trumpets are blown, people stand up and shout, Absalom's our new king, and runners take off for Jerusalem to go tell David, you've been deposed, you need to run for your life. And David does. Imagine, imagine David's shock. His own son has grabbed the throne away from him. Um, Even we are in shock as we read this development. This is David, after all. This is King David, the one who faced down Goliath with five smooth stones, the one we've seen grow from a teenager to the most beloved king of Israel, the one who is always the mover and the shaker in history, and now history is happening to him. History is in someone else's hands, And he has to flee Jerusalem, the capital city. And as we see David in these verses after where we left off in chapter 15, we see him gathering up a few people and possessions and leaving the city. More than anything else, David just seems heartbroken. More than angry or scared, this seems to have just broken his heart. He's forced to run for his life and leave Jerusalem and his palace and his place behind. How does David face this giant, this giant of a situation that he's in now? Well, just like he faced down Goliath with a sling and five smooth stones, he has stones to face this giant with as well, but they are not physical stones, they're spiritual stones but we can still look at them. And as we will see, these stones are the stones that we can also use to face down our own giants of betrayal and heartbreak when we face them. Well, we have the rest of the story in 2 Samuel 15 and the chapters that follow, but what's really cool is that we have David's heart, David's side of the story in a different place in our Bible. We have Psalm 3. And if you will turn to that, you'll see that this is written by David at this very moment in the story. That as he's reflecting on what is happening here, this is what's going on in his heart and mind. So we get not just the narration, we get the personal side of things from David as well. In Psalm 3, it says that this is a psalm of David regarding the time David fled from his son Absalom. Listen to David's heart here. He says this, O Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying, God will never rescue him. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory the one who lifts my head high. 
I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. We have three stones, three stones for our bag that come from Psalm 3. This is the first one. It comes from verse 4, where David says, I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord. He poured out his true feelings to God. And that's the first stone. Pour it out. Pour out your feelings to God. Have any of you ever heard of a century egg or sometimes called a hundred-year egg? It's a Chinese delicacy. And what you do is you take an egg and then you make a mixture of clay, ash, salt, lime, and rice hulls and you bury that raw egg in its shell in that mixture. And then you just leave it for a year or a m- two years or a decade or maybe a hundred years and listen to the description. You're supposed to eat this when it comes out, by the way. I don't know if any of you have eaten one of these and it's really okay. Let me know, but it sounds horrible. This is what it says. Through the process, the yolk becomes dark green to gray in color with a creamy consistency and an odor of sulfur and ammonia, while the white becomes a dark brown translucent jelly with little flavor. That's it on the right there. That's what happens if you bury an egg. And that's what happens if you bury a hurt. That's what happens if you bury pain and anger and bitterness and betrayal. It rots. It stinks. It can't be a good thing to carry around with you. So David doesn't bury it. He says, I cried out to the Lord. And when I say we should pour it out to the Lord, I mean literally speak it out loud. There is something so powerful and so freeing in telling the Lord out loud This is what's killing me here, God. This is what hurts me. This is what I'm wrestling with. Instead of burying it deep down inside and cementing it over and leaving it there. To pour it out, literally. The great preacher from the last century, Charles Spurgeon, said this. Surely silent prayers are heard. Yes. But good people often find that even in secret... They pray better aloud than they do when they utter no vocal sound. Pour it out. David says, I cried out to the Lord. That's that's our first stone. Tell God, literally tell God what you're feeling. So the second stone is this. It comes from verse 6. 
Verse 6 says, I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. I read that verse and I think, really? (laughs) 10,000? I'm imagining 10,000 guys coming after me with swords and spears and arrows. 10,000 guys coming after David and I think, really, he's not afraid? What's he thinking? Bill told me I could tell this story on him. When he was about four years old, his neighbor came out to the mailbox, and his mailbox was right next to it, and, and little four-year-old Bill comes up to him and says, you know, Mr. Woolsey, I can wrestle an ox. Pretty good, huh? Mr. Woolsey said to him, are you sure? <laughs> That's what I want to say to David here. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me. Are you sure? Are you sure? What's he talking about here? Is this a crazy kind of courage that is just oblivious to reality, like a four-year-old wrestling an ox? Well, I think something deeper is going on here. If you read the rest of the psalm, you see that David is not afraid, not because he thinks he's so strong, but because he knows who God is and what God can do. He has walked with God. He knows that the true nature of God is bigger than any giant. Before it was written, David knew the truth of what it says in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? So David's not afraid because he remembers what God can do. And that's our second stone to put into our bag. Our second stone is remember what God can do. Remember what God can do. What does that word remember really mean? We know it's a thought, something that we do to think. But if you think about that word remember, re Member. It's actually the opposite of dismember. You know what it means to dismember something. If it was a, like a tree, it would mean to cut all the branches off, right? And so to dismember is to, to take things apart. To remember is to reattach. Reattach those branches. To remember who God is and what God can do is to take that truth and attach it back to ourselves to take that truth of who God is and attach it back to our lives and our hearts and the deepest places in ourselves. How do we do that? How do we reattach ourselves when our faith has been shaken by a situation like this? I would suggest that we immerse ourselves in the stories of who God is and what God has done. The Psalms are great for that. The whole scripture is great for that. And people are great for that. We catch this faith from each other. When you need to remember who God is, put yourself where you can catch it from others, where you can lean on others. When you're going through a crisis of faith, the worst time to stay away from the body of Christ is at that moment. It's like saying that when you get really sick, you're going to stay away from the doctor because 
He didn't keep you from getting sick. No, no, that's the time when you really need to go and get the right medicine. When we are going through a crisis of faith, that's when we really need to come and hear the word of God and see other people whose faith we can lean on at that time. So our second stone is to remember, to remember, reattach to ourselves what God can do. Our third stone comes from verse 8. Verse 8 says, Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. David knows what he can do and what he can't do. Verse verse 8 says, Victory belongs to God. Or some translations say, Salvation belongs to God. Who saves? Not us. That's the Lord's job. And what a relief that is. That that is not our job. That is God's job. David is showing humility here. He's saying, this is in God's hands, not in my own. And he has this attitude of being willing to completely submit to God's will. It's such a contrast to Absalom's attitude, which says, I'm going to take the situation into my own hands, and no matter what the collateral damage. So our third, our third stone here is put yourself in God's hands. There's a story of a man once who fell over a cliff, and as he's on his way down, he grabs a root and just barely manages to hold on. In desperation, he shouts up, toward heaven. Is there anyone up there? And to his astonished delight, a voice floats down, a voice that says, I am the Lord God, and I am here. So the man says, well, what should I do? And the voice calls back down to him, let go of the branch, and with my protection, you will float unharmed down to the beach below. Well, The man is holding on to his root, and he looks down the hundreds of feet to the crashing waves and the sharp rocks, and he thinks, I don't know. And then he shouts back up to the the voice up above, is there anyone else up there? (laughs) When we are holding on to our last root, it can seem like a terrifying thing to put ourselves in God's hands. The book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is true. But there is no better place to be than in God's hands. It can be terrifying to let go of that root, but there is no better place to be than in God's hands. David knows that ultimately, if he is going to be saved, it's going to be up to God. If you look ahead in verse 15, just a a few verses to verse 25, we see this meeting that David has on his way out of Jerusalem with the high priest. And David says to him, If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see the Ark of the Covenant and God's dwelling place again. But if God says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let God do to me whatever seems good to him. He is putting himself in God's hands. 
Now, that doesn't mean David doesn't use his own experience and his own effort and his own wisdom. He doesn't just sit back. If you read the rest of the story, you see that. And how does this end for David, by the way? How does this all come out? Well, it's after 11 o'clock, so I really don't have time to tell you, but you're going to have to read it for yourselves. Bring your Bible home and open up to 2 Samuel 15 and keep reading, and I guarantee you will have a good afternoon of a very interesting story. David knows what God can do, and he knows what his own limitations are, and so he trusts God to do the right thing. He puts himself in God's hands, and that's really the heart of what we've been talking about here, that through all the ups and downs of life, all the giants, all the good things, that's where we want to be, right in God's hands. As I was going to sleep last night, I pulled a little book off my bedside table that I always keep there. It's a book of devotions for every week of the year, and there is a prayer for last night. That as I read it, I thought, this is perfect for what we have been walking through today and through this whole series. It's actually a hymn that's called, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. And as we finish today, the words are going to be up on the screen, and let's make this our prayer as we put ourselves in God's hands. Would you pray this with me? O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be.